The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. And welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Melissa Lee, and today for Scott Wapner, rising rates front and center as a key benchmark hits a new high. Where's the bottom for this market, especially for the NASDAQ and the beaten up tech trade? Plus, we'll get you ready for a very crucial earnings season kicking off next week. Our investment committee today, Carrie Firestone, Jason Snipe, Jim Labenthal, and Pete Nigerian, co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. But first, we get a check on the markets right now. Stocks are down, but well off of the lows of the session. Yields are up. The 10-year yield topping 2.7% for the first time in more than three years. So to the 30-year yield. The S&P and Nasdaq on pace for their first losing week in four. We've got the uh, S&P up by 11 points or a quarter of a percent. The Nasdaq down by just about a half a percent right now. Where are we in the markets, I ask, as we finish off a largely down week? Jim Labenthal, are we uh, digesting a rate shock that the Fed sent us earlier? Melissa, thanks. It's good to see you. And I love the way you just phrased that because I'm going to repeat it back to you. I think we are just digesting a rate shock. And um, I also want to reflect on what you just said. It maybe probably is going to be the first down week in four. Uh, so we had three up weeks. We bounced off that low with a lot of, a lot of bad news priced in. This feels to me like just a natural pause in an otherwise upward trend that has developed. Now, I realize that's not a popular sentiment. I've been listening to the show and I've been on it all week. And it's not that I miss the negatives that are out there. You know, the yield curve inverted this week. Uh, all the Fed uh, uh, speeches that seem to indicate that we're going to get 50 basis points and probably more than one 50 basis point hike. Ukraine, Ukraine, Russia. I see what's all out there. What I submit to you is my position. This is based in, baked into the cake right now. This is priced into the market. And what's not priced into the market is what may likely happen over the next three months. Inflation may have peaked. Ukraine and Russia could get worse, but it's more likely that it's at a stalemate. You've got labor force participation rate picking up, which eases wage pressures. You've got freight, uh, freight supply chains unsnarling, and yes, still a China problem, but they've been unsnarling. There's a pretty good chance that inflation starts to show the whites of its eyes just as the Fed gets one big massive rate hike in in early May, and then it can sit back and say, well, wait a second. Let's see how we do. They're still going to raise rates. But this idea that they're going to get to two and a half percent by the end of the year, I'm suspicious of that. I think they don't have to. Jim Labenthal is walking in the sunny side of the street this uh, morning or afternoon. Pete Nigerian, where do you stand? Because I think it, it has become more consensus these days to believe that perhaps inflation fears um, haven't been yet priced into the market in terms of inflation getting worse than what we're seeing right now, that recession is a possibility right now. The scenario that Jim lays out seems to be a counter that consensus notion at this point. Where would you fall? Yeah, I'm walking around out in the sun in a pair of swim trunks, but I also have an umbrella with me. I'm a little bit cautious, in other words. I mean, what we're seeing right now, Mel, 
is great, and Jim points it out. He does a great job of, of analyzing all of the different points that he brought up, and I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think when you see that supply chain starting to loosen, I mean, that is something that obviously is very, very critical for all of us in, in, in just about every part of our lives. So that's something that I think everybody's focused on that. We also, of course, keep our eye on what's going on with Russia, Ukraine. That's a big deal. And I'm, I'm sort of in the gym camp. I, I think that the extraordinary numbers that I've been heard day after day about what the Fed's going to do throughout the next uh, multiple sessions when, they, when they're going to be commenting on what, they, what they're thinking about doing, um, I don't know. I think it could be very interesting to see what they do following what we're expecting. And they have been transparent, uh, Mel, for a long time. I hear a lot of people being very critical about the Fed. They've been very transparent. They've told us, hey, look, we're going to do a quarter point. There's a good chance we're going to do a half a point. Whatever, the, whatever it is, they've been very, very clear. So because of that, I think you just got to trade around it. We all, we all see what's going on today. A little bit in the last couple of days, a little bit of pressure on some of those NASDAQ stocks. But they had that great run as well. So it does take a little bit of movement, uh, I think, to pause at times. And I think that's what we're seeing out of the NASDAQ right now is more of a pause than a dramatic pullback. I think people have been critical of the Fed, not for, for lack of transparency, Pete, but for lack of movement in the light of all this inflation that we yeah. have seen now for months on end. Um, that is a different story here. At the start of the show, I use the term rate shock when I asked Jim Labenthal a question, Carrie, and I use that because if you read Bank of America's note this morning from strategist Michael Hartnett, he uses that phrase. He says the inflation shock is worsening, the rate shock is just beginning, and the recession shock is coming. He quotes various fund managers within his, within his note, which sort of exemplified the thinking on the street. And one of them said something to the effect of, I can't decide if it's recession or stagflation at this point. Um, are we just getting too negative here, Carrie? Yes. Well, those were all very negative terms that uh, B of A used in the note. And, you know, let's let's remember when the S&P was down 11 percent and the Nasdaq was down 23 percent from its peak. Those were corrections that baked in a fair amount of negativity. So it's not as if the market has ignored the possibility that there could be a recession. And we know the market dropped 37 percent to March 24th of 2020 before we really saw the recession hitting because of COVID. And that was the point to buy. And I'm not suggesting that the market is all a buy, but certain stocks certainly were at a level that they were very attractively priced down 30 to 70 percent in many cases. And you have to pick your spots. We know that the NASDAQ on average over the last 50 sessions has moved 1.7 percent, either up or down during this period of time. That's just incredible volatility. So there are a lot of people worried about whether we're going to be in a recession, in a recession. I had several clients ask me that yesterday. Are we now in a recession? We have 3.6% unemployment. It's hard to imagine that's a recessionary scenario today, but we're gonna hear a lot over earnings season over the next few weeks, and we expect more volatility. And if stocks get hit hard, Maybe that's a time to buy them and look for opportunities to perhaps take profits in some of the sectors that have worked incredibly well, such as energy or consumer staples over the next few weeks. Yeah, I mean, to Carrie's point, Jason, we have seen parts of the market really severely correct. And, and just in recent months, when you take a look at some of the sector moves just year to date, home builders are down 30 percent, semis are down 23 percent, small caps are down 20 percent, retail is down 20 percent. I mean, the list goes on and on. It's not like we haven't seen pain inflicted in the markets. It's just pockets of the market here 
So what is the message that we're taking away in your view? I mean, have we have we adjusted for this new environment in which there is both balance sheet runoff more aggressively than thought, as well as uh, rate rate hikes more aggressively than we thought? Absolutely. I mean, all great points. And obviously, Melissa, there there's a litany of, of concerns in terms of just the headwinds. Obviously, you started with Fed. Fed speak. Brainerd came out, obviously, a hawkish tone. Uh, Ukraine, obviously, the crisis there and obviously inflation. And we're going to get a lot of data next week, PPI numbers, CPI numbers, as well as retail sales, which will kind of really give us perspective on how the consumer is doing. Obviously, earnings will start next week, starting with the financials. So for me, um, you know, and I don't know if this was mentioned earlier, but when we talk about inflation, some encouraging data that I saw this week, uh, you know, with the World Container Index, it's obviously those prices are starting to moderate, coming down 3%, a little over 3% week over week. The other important data point I believe that's important to note is autos, used car autos, which we talked about a lot during the during the depth of the pandemic and how pricing has surged in that arena, they have come down 3.9%. So, you know, I, I, I still am cautious about this market, but I think there will be opportunities that you just alluded to, a, a lot of places which have really gotten beaten up and felt the pain. So I'm really looking forward to earnings next week, getting an idea of the state of the consumer and how we move forward going into the second quarter. Pete, I hear that in your swim trunks on the sunny side of the street, you bought Goldman Sachs, which we highlighted yesterday, <laughs> hitting a fresh 52-week low, along with Citi, which you had owned at one point. I want to know the status of that trade as well. Yeah, the Citi trade, actually, Mel, I own calls in Citi. I do not mm. own stock in Citi, just to clarify that. I will say this, though, as far as Goldman Sachs, it's been a name that I've been looking at for a while. And as we were talking about just yesterday, I've always got lists. We all should have lists throughout our, our trading, whether it's whether or not it's a bull market, bear market, doesn't really matter. You should always have lists out. I had my list out and I was looking at certain areas of the market and specifically I was looking at the financials. There were two names that stood out for me most, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. But it became a very easy decision to go with Goldman Sachs. First of all, is it 52-week lows? Second of all, it trades at a one multiple to the book. So in other words, it's trading at book value, as opposed to Morgan Stanley, which is a little closer to one and a half. I think based upon that and what we're seeing in terms of P.E. and where they are in the markets itself and what they do, we all know they're not really a bank. They're an investment bank. And they do a lot of asset management and so forth. But this is not... I think we're having problems with Pete, like, obviously, but he is making the case on a valuation basis why he chose Goldman Sachs over Morgan Stanley. But perhaps, and I'll ask Carrie this question, perhaps there is a reason why Goldman Sachs is cheaper, why Goldman Sachs is, a, is at a one price to book, why Goldman Sachs is at a 52-week low versus a Morgan Stanley. What do you think? Yeah, well, so that's interesting. You're saying, is it cheaper for a reason? Because its growth is not as robust over the next few years. Well, Goldman has had some problems. And much of their proprietary business, if you look at the history of Goldman and where they made all their money, they're having to reformulate and reimagine the company to some extent. But I understand what, what um, Pete's saying. You know, one time's book isn't, uh, it, it isn't a lot of, uh, for a, a growing financial. And I think that's a reasonable uh, purchase and entry point right here. I think we got Pete back. Carrie, by the way, Pete, mm -hmm. uh, yep. approves of your purchase. It's interesting because just <laughs> yesterday when we spoke about the markets overall, Pete, you said you couldn't find a single stock mm -hmm. to buy and yet you pulled the trigger on Goldman Sachs. What else is on that list of yours? 
Well, we were talking about that yesterday, but I think Best Buy was one of the names that yeah. I, I, I definitely was looking at. There's a, there's a few names. You know, there's multiple names each and every day, and sometimes, you know, something else pops up. But um, the, the reason I wanted to make this move in Goldman was it just seemed like the right timing, considering the fact that we have seen so much punishment dealt there to this particular stock. And, and I got to tell you, Oftentimes they're right. They're, 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 they're punished for a reason. City's a great example of that. City has just not performed. And because of that, I think that's why that stock is trading where it is at the levels that it is. Goldman Sachs has performed. Goldman Sachs has executed pretty amazingly well, I think, overall throughout the last couple of years. And yet they've been a stock that's been under some punishment. So I think for that reason, Mel, that's why I went there. And I think going forward, as we look to the next year or so, they are very well positioned to be in a, in a great trading market. I mean, one of the reasons I, I remain cautious, but I'm still extremely aggressive, is I can be aggressive trading the markets, especially the derivative markets. But when it comes to stocks, those are names where I'm looking for an, op for, for an option to enter something where I think over the next couple of years, they actually have a lot of growth in front of them. And that's what I look at Goldman Sachs right here. Yeah, well, first quarter comps are going to be very tough versus a year ago, first quarter, which saw that boom in SPACs, a boom in deal making, et cetera. I mean, the declines in revenue for investment bank for the sector expect to be down by more than 30 percent. Trading's down to be expected to be down by about 18 percent. Um, Jim Labenthal, do you find value in the financials here, given um, what we're seeing in the yield curve in terms of the spread? Well, I, I do, Melissa, and I think, you know, this. you have to step back and understand that my thesis is we're still in the middle part of this economic expansion. Uh, so I'm not one who's buying into the recession calls even in 2023. Now, if I'm right, and by the way, that's based on corporate capex. You see these factories going up everywhere, supply chain onshoring, infrastructure spending. But to the point that you're asking, if what I just said is correct, you're going to need financing for that. So you're going to see loan growth picking up. If you look at the labor market right Right now it's extraordinarily strong and I think I don't see that stopping anytime soon that means that credit losses should be good at least on the consumer side on the corporate side you've got balance sheets that are flush with cash so I'm not really worried about credit there um, yeah I see how the yield curve is flat but you know what <laughs> credit card rates aren't offered mo for the most part at the Fed funds rate so banks are going to be doing just fine and for the two that you mentioned City and Goldman Sachs both of which I own yeah they've been disappointments but the truth is their cash flows are enabling them to buy back shares at or below book value and I love that at the end of the day I'm getting more and more concentrated in very good cash flows uh, Jason I, I know that all of us want to be positive we want to be looking at the bright side of things. We don't want a recession to happen. I mean, that's the bottom line here. But at the same time, are we, are we just fighting what the charts are telling us? I mean, if you take a look at the charts, um, transports are telling us things are not going to look good. Banks and how they're performing are telling us that things are not going to look good. And semiconductors as well. I mean, at what point do you say, you know, this, is the mar this is what the market is giving me. This is what the market is telling me. Absolutely. And, and obviously, this is what the market is telling because we see it as a response in the price action of what we've seen thus far this year. But what I will say, and I think J Jimmy makes a great point on just, you know, when, when I'm looking at obviously financials and loan growth and credit quality and, and the state of the consumer, all these things are, are very important. But what I will say as, as in relation to that is there's been a lot of discussion on the Fed. And I think the Fed has been, you know, we talk about this as the best telegraph. QT that we've all seen, um, but there still hasn't been, the movement still hasn't happened yet. And I still think they will be very data dependent 
on how markets respond. They have to talk to inflation is raging. It's important to get this under control. But what happens if the market actually figures it out itself? As we we're seeing, as I stated earlier, and supply chain starting to ease. What if that happens? I think we could be in a good position for stocks. And as I've taught early, you know, in, in getting into investment management, equities are one of the best hedges against inflation. I think that's always important to note as we move forward in, in this new operating environment. All right, we've got to take a break here, but uh, still ahead, we'll talk the tech rack and how to play it from here. Plus, Pete's unusual activity trades. Halftime is back into. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. NASDAQ and tech, the worst losers this week, perhaps not a surprise, uh, given hi- uh, higher rates impact usually on tech valuations. Jim Labenthal, if the answer to beating inflation in a long-term portfolio is to be in stocks, is the answer really to be in large-cap tech stocks, which have held up relatively better than the rest? Boy, I love the way you set things up. Let me let me agree with your premise to start with. Start with the, the right way to beat inflation is to be in stocks. Now, which type of stocks? Mel, I'll tell you, I think that cyclicals are going to do better than large cap tech, but large cap tech is going to be just fine. To be more specific, you look at Apple and Google. Let's just stick to the fangs. Let's hit the easy button here. Let's not make this harder than it has to be, okay? We're having a debate about whether you should be in the stock market or not. Make it easy. You're buying Apple at 20 five times earnings. You're buying Google at 23 times earnings. I do not expect those multiples to go up. I think they're probably going to stay constant. And so the share price is going to go up at the rate that their earnings per shares go up, which is roughly 8 to 12 percent. You know what? If you can do that by easily being in two of the highest quality companies in the world, why wouldn't you do that? And why wouldn't you take the easy answer to whether or not you should be invested? I hope that's helpful. I have a question. I have a question. Um, for this class on investing, um, I'll, I'll throw the question to you, Jason Snipe. Um, if you want to hedge against inflation, want to be in stocks, why not be in commodity stocks? So I, I did say cyclicals, Melissa. Okay, okay, okay. I'm asking for a friend, Jason. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, obviously, you have to be in the market. Jim makes a great point. I mean, for the long term, we're talking about duration now. You know, if you're looking for capital appreciation for the long term, you have to be in the markets. Now, as it relates to the tech trade, 
I think it's, I mean, if you look at an Apple for as an example, I mean, they have $100 billion in free cash flow. A Google has $67 billion in free cash flow. I mean, in terms of free cash flow, these are doing, they're doing, they have more capital than a lot of companies do business, right? So I think it's, it's important to know how important that is if you're looking at long duration companies with a 10 year at 2.7%, roughly, yes, the non profitable tech, the companies that do not have free cash flow or, or, or profits today are going to struggle. But I think it's a safe bet to put, put some capital to work. And, and to Jimmy's point, it's an, easy, it's an easy button to push. And I think it would make sense in this. Carrie, still, I mean, even if you're a long-term investor, you could see bumps along the ride in these large-cap tech stocks, particularly when it comes to guidance for the second quarter and what they're seeing with the European impact. A lot of them have big presences in Europe. Netflix, for one, which I think you own, um, could see an impact mm-hmm. from Europe, increased churn, et cetera. What, what are you looking for in terms of what these companies will be telegraphing about the second quarter? Well, names like Netflix took their estimates way down Mm -hmm. when they reported at the end of the year. Right. So that stock is down 50 percent and the multiple has been cut in half. So we're talking about a multiple in line with the market, uh, as as is true of the things in general. So I, I think that what we're going to hear is caution, but the market expects caution. And if you can get, uh, as as Jim pointed out, growth in the high single digits to 20% at a market multiple. And these kind of stocks are recession proof to the extent that they might grow a little less than the market, uh, sorry, a little less than they would in a strong economy, but cyclical stocks will not grow during a recession. And if the cyclicals are selling for higher multiples, so if, for example, um, you, you buy an industrial that's selling for 24 times earnings, or there are many industrials that have had huge runs over the last six months. And you can buy um, Alphabet or uh, Netflix or, uh, you know, even Apple for a lower multiple. I think that's a reasonable trade. Uh, You know, remember, uh, a company like Google has sales, just sales that's bigger than the entire uh, medical device industry. The sales of that one company, forget about bigger than a lot of countries. So we're not just talking about uh, companies that have big margins, which they do, but just tremendous sales. And those sales numbers are growing. Jim, yeah, you wanted to get in? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't ask a question, but what were you asking me, Melissa? Oh, I thought you had a comment what Carrie was saying. If not, I will proceed with with. He wanted to agree. Wanted to agree. (laughs) Jim is very agreeable today, liking everything, liking all the setups, agreeing with that. You guys are just so agreeable today. You know what? Actually, actually, Melissa. Well, Melissa, last time we were on, I had a little spat with my frenemy, and I think I I caught you by surprise with that. So I am, I am on good behavior with you. But you know, based on what you just said, I do want to make a good. I want to make a point here. That, you know, by no means am I or anyone who's being optimistic on the show dismissing the negatives that are out there. I mean, for instance, when we're talking about Apple and Google, and I sort of blithely say I think the multiples can stay where they are, there's Mm -hmm. an argument to be made that they can come down. But this goes to the bigger picture I was making at the start of the show is that there are reasons to be positive. You mentioned at the top of the show the 10 years at 2.7%. That feels awfully toppy to me. And if it comes down, that's going to be supportive of these multiples on large cap tech, just to bring the circle full square there.
Yeah, and Krinsky actually had some technical work yesterday saying 275 was probably what he sees as being toppy. But Pete, I guess this brings also us to the philosophical question, uh, and that is, is the market multiple priced well? Are we pricing in enough with the market multiple? Because if we're going to compare everything against a market multiple, then we have to believe that the market multiple is where it should be. Yeah, and I think it's pretty close, Mel. I mean, no, but none of us have a perfect answer for that question, but I think it is pretty close. And I think going back to what you guys are talking about, about the mega cap tech especially, I think the interesting part is that's where you can be incredibly aggressive. And you and I have talked about this, but from the derivative side, am I buying any more Apple? No. Am I, am I selling Apple or Facebook or Microsoft? Absolutely not. But you can trade around it. And the trades that have been going on in the derivatives markets have been absolutely incredible of late. And you're doing them at very low volatilities when those opportunities have come up. So I think there's a lot to be said for, you know, you hold these stocks, but you can trade around them all day long. And that's been great of late, especially Apple, Microsoft, Facebook. You go through those big, the big three, there's been incredible volumes in there. They almost always seem to be leaders when it comes to volumes in the derivatives world. And they've been incredibly correct. Those unusual option folks have been very, very good about buying and watching those stocks actually move rel relatively rapidly to the upside. All right, stay with us. Pete is tracking unusual activity in the options market and his latest trades are next on Halftime. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. I'm Seema Modi, and here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Now, within the last hour, a former Goldman Sachs banker was convicted of participating in a scheme to steal $4.5 billion from a Malaysian state investment fund. The jury rejected Roger Eng's argument. He was scapegoated by prosecutors for other people's crimes, including those committed by the government's star witness. We all know it's tough. That's the word from a federal judge as he asked the jury to keep deliberating in the trial of four men accused of conspiring to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. The panel had told the judge it has reached decisions on several of the 10 charges, but was deadlocked on others.
And a high-ranking member of the Proud Boys has a plea deal. Charles Donahue told a court he is pleading guilty to charges connected with the January 6th attack on the Capitol. The deal with prosecutors includes a promise that Donahue will cooperate with investigations into the attack. He has ties to the former national chairman of the group. That's the latest. Melissa, back to you. Seema, thank you. Seema Modi, let's now get to Phil LeBeau, who's got breaking news. Phil. Melissa, this involves unruly passengers, and it comes from the Department of Transportation. It has just announced the two largest fines ever, one for 82000 the other for 77000 for a couple of incidents involving passengers last July. The total number of fines this year alone from the DOT for unruly passengers, $2 million. And Melissa, Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg has the quote of the day when it comes to unruly passengers. If you're on an airplane, don't be a jerk. And I think that summarizes it pretty good. Melissa, back to you. That should be, uh, that should be advice for, for all of life, Phil. Don't be a jerk. <laughs> Thank you, Phil LeBeau. Frankly, they should, put that in, they should put that in the airport everywhere. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Time for unusual activity. Pete, what do you see in the options market? Well, first of all, they shouldn't have to do that, Mel. But anyway, <laughs> secondly, uh, JetBlue. Jet, JetBlue's trading at a 52-week low, and yet we've got a huge buyer walking in. 22,000 of the May 15 calls being bought. Stock trading right around 12, as I say, 52-week lows. Those options, one print, 19,500 of those, 15 cents. So 15 cents up to 20 cents. That one stuck out for me. And secondly, I've got Petrobras, totally the opposite. It's hitting 52-week highs, and yet they're looking for even more. A buyer of 13,000 of the May 16 calls in Petrobras. Stock was trading about 15.60 at the time. These calls are only going for about 29 cents up to about 33 cents. So inexpensive and also unusual because they're buying time. They're going out to May. That's interesting. Everything else has been short term. How do you interpret the JetBlue activity, Pete, that the deal will not go through? That's what, that's what traders believe? Yeah. I, that, that's what I would guess, Mel. Okay. I mean, the stock has been terrible no matter what, but they're looking for a bit of a bounce. So absolutely. Yeah. What are we thinking about the travel stocks overall, Carrie? I'm, I'm just curious because with inflation raging, people may not be spending on a new couch, but they still want to go to Disneyland. <laughs> well, that, that's true. I mean, we own bookings, which is a, a play mm -hmm. on travel. And yeah, we are seeing uh, enormous bookings, full planes. All of the planes say that they're at capacity, but the problem with airlines is they can't both get crews. They're having labor problems, not not labor problems in terms of unions, but there's there are wage uh, issues with with airlines. Fuel costs are skyrocketing, as we know, and and then JetBlue makes a bad acquisition or one that is being perceived as as negative in the next couple of years, and so that's really weighing on the stock right now and other transports. Yeah. Jason, how are you feeling about travel at this point? Is that is that the way to, to play consumer discretionary? We're, we're seeing some pretty, um, I don't want to say terrible, I'll say terrible uh, stock charts in retail <laughs> land. Yeah, so I don't have a ton of exposure to travel, but clearly uh, there's a lot of pent up demand and just looking at Carnival's numbers this past week. I mean, there, there's there's a lot of runway there, whether we're calling the three point Reopening 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, there's a lot of pent-up demand. I think there's you could get some names here um, that have some runway. So that's how I, I would look at it. I mean, Mar Marriott is, is a name that we own, but, you know, direct plays like, like Carnival and some of the others, I think, are opportunities. By the way, we're showing a live picture of the White House. We are expecting President Biden, along with Vice President Harris, to speak about the confirmation of the newest Supreme Justice. Um, here is Vice President Kamala Harris at the podium. Let's listen in. 
President Joe Biden, First Lady, Dr. Jill Biden, Second Gentleman, Douglas Emhoff, members of Congress, members of the Cabinet, members of our administration, and friends and fellow Americans. Today is indeed a wonderful day. As we gather to celebrate the confirmation of the next justice of the United States Supreme Court, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. George Washington once referred to America as a great experiment, a nation founded on the previously untested belief that the people, we the people, could form a more perfect union. And that belief has pushed our nation forward for generations. And it is that belief that we reaffirmed yesterday. <laughs> Through the confirmation of the first black woman to the United States Supreme Court. <laughs> and Judge Jackson, you will inspire generations of leaders. They will watch your confirmation hearings and read your decisions. In the years to come, the court will answer fundamental questions about who we are and what kind of country we live in. Will we? expand opportunity or restrict it? Will we strengthen the foundations of our great democracy or let them crumble? Will we move forward or backward? The young leaders of our nation will learn from the experience, the judgment, the wisdom that you, Judge Jackson, will apply in every case that comes before you, and they will see, for the first time, four women sitting on that court at one time. So as, as a point of personal privilege, I will share with you, Judge Jackson, that when I presided over the Senate confirmation vote yesterday, while I was sitting there, I drafted a note to my goddaughter. And I told her that I felt such a deep sense of pride and joy, and about what this moment means for our nation and for her future. And I will tell you, her braids are just a little longer than yours. <laughs> 
But as I wrote to her, I told her what I knew this would mean for her life and all that she has in terms of potential. So indeed, the road toward our more perfect union is not always straight, and it is not always smooth. But sometimes it leads to a day like today. A day that reminds us what is possible, what is possible when progress is made, and that the journey, well, it will always be worth it. So let us not forget that as we celebrate this day, we are also here in great part because of one President Joe Biden, commitment, a lifelong commitment to building a better America. And of course, we are also here because of the voices and the support of so many others, many of whom are in this audience today. And with that, it is now my extreme and great honor to introduce our president, Joe Biden. Thank you, Kamala. Thank you, thank you, thank you. The first really smart decision I made in this administration. <laughs> My name's Joe Biden. Please sit down. I'm Jill's husband <laughs> and Naomi Biden's grandfather. And uh, folks, uh, you know, yesterday, uh, th this is not only a sunny day, I mean this from the bottom of my heart. This is going to let so much shine, sun shine on so many young women, so many young black women, so many minorities, that it's real. It's real. We're going to look back, nothing to do with me. We're going to look back and see this as a moment of real change in American history. I was on the phone this morning, Jesse, with President Ramaphosa of South Africa. And he was talking about how the time that I was so outspoken about what was going on in my meeting with Nelson Mandela here. And I said, you know, I said, I'm shortly going to go out, look, I'm looking out the window. I'm going to go out on this, what they call the South Lawn in the White House. And I'm going to introduce to the world, to the world, the first African-American woman out of over 200 judges on the Supreme Court. And he said to me, he said, keep it up. Keep it up. We're going to keep it up. And folks, yesterday we all witnessed a truly historic moment presided over by the Vice President. There are moments that people go back in history and they're literally historic, consequential, fundamental shifts in American policy. Today, we're joined by the First Lady, the Second Gentleman, and members of the Cabinet 
Senate Majority Leader. Were, there you are, Chuck. Senate Majority Leader. And so many who made this possible. But And today is a good day, a day uh, that history is going to remember. And in the years to come, they're going to be proud of what we did. And we're going to try what Dick Durbin did as the chairman of the committee. I'm serious, Dick. I'm deadly earnest when I say that. To turn our children and grandchildren to say, I was there. I was there. That's, this is one of those moments, in my view. My fellow Americans, today I'm honored to officially introduce to you the next Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, Katanji Brown Jackson. After more than 20 hours of questioning at her hearing, in nearly 100 meetings, she made herself available to every single senator who wanted to speak to her and spoke for more than just a few minutes, answered their questions in private as well as before the committee. We all saw the kind of justice she'll be, fair and impartial, thoughtful, careful, precise, brilliant, a brilliant legal mind with deep knowledge of the law, and a judicial temperament, which was equally important in my view, that's calm and in command, and a humility that allows so many Americans to see themselves in Katanji Brown Jackson. That brings a rare combination of expertise and qualifications to the court. A federal judge who has served on the second most powerful court in America behind the Supreme Court. A former federal public defender with the ability But the ability to explain complicated issues in the law in ways everybody, all people, can understand. A new perspective. When I made the commitment to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court, I could see this day. I literally could see this day because I thought about it for a long, long time. As Jill and Naomi will tell you, I wasn't going to run again. But when I decided to run, this was one of the first decisions I made. I could see it. I could see it as a day of hope, a day of promise, a day of progress, a day when, once again, the moral arc of the universe, as Barack used to quote all the time, bends a little more toward justice. I knew it wouldn't be easy, but I knew the person I nominated would be put through a painful and difficult confirmation process. But I have to tell you, what Judge Jackson was put through was well beyond that. There was verbal abuse, the anger, the constant interruptions, the most vile, baseless assertions and accusations. In the face of it all, Judge Jackson showed the incredible character and integrity she possesses. Poise. Poise and composure. Patience and restraint. And yes, perseverance and even joy, even joy. Katanji, or I can't, I'm not going to be calling you that in public anymore. <laughs> Judge, you are the very definition of what we Irish refer to as dignity. You have enormous dignity. And it communicates to people. It's contagious. 
and it matters. It matters a lot. Maybe that's not surprising if you look to uh, sat behind her during those hearings. Her husband, Dr. Patrick Jackson and his family. Patrick, stand up, man. Stand up. Talia and Layla, stand up. I know it's embarrassing the girls. I'm going to tell you what Talia said. I said to Talia, it's hard being the daughter or the son of a famous person. I said, imagine what it's like being president. He said, she said, she may be. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And Kataj, her brother, a former police officer and a veteran. Kataj, stand up, man. This man looks like he can still play, buddy. He's got biceps about as big as my calves. Thank you, bud. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And of course, her parents, Johnny and Elroy Brown. Johnny, all right, stand up. I'll tell you what, as I told mom, Mom's rule in my house. Oh, you're not think I'm kidding. I'm not. My mom and my wife as well. Look, people of deep faith, the deep love of family and country, that's what you represent. Who know firsthand, mom and dad, the indignity of Jim Crow, the inhumanity of legal segregation, and you had overcome so much in your own lives. You saw the strength of parents and the strength of a daughter that is just worth celebrating. I can't get over mom and dad, you know, I mean, what, what you did and your faith and never giving up any hope. And both that wonderful son you have and your daughter. You know, and that strength lifted up millions of Americans who watched you, Judge Jackson, especially women and women of color who have had to run the gauntlet in their own lives. So many of my cabinet members are women, women of color, women that represent every sector of the community. And it matters. And you stood up for them as well. They know it. Everybody out there, every woman out there, everyone, am I correct? Just like they have. Just like they have. And same with the women members of Congress as well, across the board. Look, it's a powerful thing when people can see themselves in others. Think about that. What's the most powerful thing? I'll bet every one of you can go back and think of a time in your life where there was a teacher, a family member, a neighbor, somebody, somebody who made you believe that you could be whatever you wanted to be. It's a powerful, powerful, powerful notion. That's one of the reasons I believe so strongly that we needed a court that looks like America, not just the Supreme Court. That's why I'm proud to say, with the great help of Dick Durbin, I've nominated more black women judges of federal appeal courts than all previous presidents combined. Combined. That's why I'm proud that Kamala Harris is our vice president of the United States. A brilliant lawyer, the Attorney General of the State of California, 
former member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Kamala was invaluable during this entire process. And Chuck, I majority don't want to thank you, pal. You did a masterful job in keeping the caucus together, getting this vote across the finish line in a timely and historic manner. Just watching on television yesterday, watching when the vote was taken and the Democratic side, the very people, there was such enthusiasm, genuine. You can tell when it's real. You can tell when it's real. You did an incredible job, Chuck. Thank you so much. Folks. Because you're all able to sit down and don't have to stand, I'm going to go on a little longer here and tell you. <laughs> I want to say something about Dick Durbin again. Dick, I'm telling you, overseeing the hearing, how you executed the strategy by the hour, every day, to keep the committee together. And you have a very divided committee with some of the most conservative members of the Senate on that committee. It was especially difficult with an evenly divided Senate. Dick, I, I served as chairman of that committee for a number of years before I had this job and the job of vice president, as did uh, all the Democrats. You did not stand. I think all the Democrats in the committee did, and uh, every Democrat in the Senate, all of whom voted for Judge Jackson. And notwithstanding the harassment and attacks in the hearings, I always believed that the bipartisan vote was possible. And I hope I don't get him in trouble. I mean it sincerely, but I want to thank three Republicans who voted for Judge Jackson. <laughs> Senator Collins is a woman of integrity. Senator Murkowski the same way in Alaska and up for re-election. And Mitt Romney, whose dad stood up like he did. His dad stood up and made these decisions on civil rights. They deserve enormous credit for setting aside partnership and making a carefully considered judgment based on the judge's character, qualifications, independence. And I truly admire the respect, diligence, and hard work they demonstrated in the course of the process. As someone who's overseen, they tell me, more Supreme Court nominations than anyone who's alive today, I believe that respect for the process is important. And that's why it was so important to me to meet the constitutional requirement to seek the advice and the consent of the Senate, the advice beforehand and the consent. Judge Jackson started the nominating process with an, impre an impressive range of support, from the FOP to the civil rights leaders. Even Republican-appointed judges came forward. In fact, Judge Jackson was introduced to the hearing by Judge Thomas Griffin, the distinguished retired judge appointed by George W. Bush. She finished the hearing with among the highest levels of support of the American people of any nomination in recent memory. So soon, Judge Jackson will join the United States Supreme Court. And like every justice, the decisions she makes will impact on the lives of America for a lot longer, in many cases, than any laws we all make. But the truth is, she's already impacting the lives of so many Americans. During the hearing, Dick spoke about a custodial worker who works a night shift at the Capitol. Her name is Verona Clemens. Verona, where are you? Stand up, Verona. I wanted to see you. don't mind. She told him what this nomination meant to her. So he invited Ms. Clemens to attend the hearing because she wanted to see, hear, and stand by Judge Jackson. Thank you, Verona.
Thank you, thank you, thank you. At a meeting with Judge Jackson, Senator Duckworth introduced her to 11-year-old, is it Vivian? Vivian. Vivian. I'm sorry, Vivian. There's, that's her. Is that your sister? He's pointing. <laughs> Who's so inspired by the hearing, she wants to be a Supreme Court justice when she grows up. God love you. Stand up, honey. Am I going to embarrass you by asking you to stand up? Come on, stand. There's tens of thousands of veins all through the entire United States. She met Judge Jackson and saw her future. Means you're here today, and thank you for coming, honey. I know I embarrassed you by introducing you, but thank you. People of every generation, of every race, of every background felt this moment, and they feel it now. They feel a sense of pride and hope and belonging and believing and knowing the promise of America includes everybody, all of us. That's the American experiment. Justice Breyer talked about it when he came to the White House in January to announce his retirement from the court. He used to technically work with me when I was on the Judiciary Committee, and that's before he became a justice. He's a man of great integrity. We're going to miss Justice Breyer. He's a patriot, an extraordinary public service, and a great justice of the Supreme Court. And folks, <laughs> let me close with what I've long said. America is a nation that can be defined in a single word. I was in the foot, 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 excuse me, the foothills of the Himalayas with Xi Jinping, traveling with him. I guess we traveled 17,000 miles when I was vice president. I don't know that for a fact. And uh, we were sitting alone. I had an interpreter, and he had an interpreter. And he looked at me in all seriousness. He said, can you define America for me? And I said what many of you heard me say for a long time. I said, yes, I can. In one word, possibilities. Possibilities. That in America, everyone should be able to go as far as their hard work and God-given talent will take them. And possibilities. We're the only ones. That's why we're viewed as the ugly Americans. We think anything's possible. <laughs> and the idea that a young girl who was dissuaded from even thinking you should apply to Harvard Law School. Don't raise your hopes so high. Well, I don't know who told you that, but I'd like to go back and invite her to the Supreme Court. She can see the interior. <laughs> Look, even the Supreme Court of the United States of America. Now, folks, it's my honor, and it truly is an honor, I've been looking forward to it for a while, to introduce you the next Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court, the Honorable Katanji Brown Jackson. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.